Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. There was a lot of water pulling on the runway due to the rain, and the nose wheel of my aircraft managed to push all the water rearwards down the intake of the two F-111 engines. It suffered uh, what's called a compressed stall, loss of thrust, basically a double engine failure. And as we went over uh, the cliff at the end of the runway, we ejected. The voice there of Mark Kelly. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I will be your host for this final episode of Season 3. Yes, folks, that's 48 episodes now, three seasons of 16 episodes of the podcast. Thank you to those who've been listening. And we're going to go out with this conversation that I had recently with Mark Kelly, who had a very long career as a Qantas 747 captain and prior to that uh, as an Air Force pilot including at one point uh, captaining the Australian F-111C and indeed experiencing, along with his navigator Al Kerr, a successful ejection from that F-111 in New Zealand. And you'll hear all about that story in a moment. Let me just remind you or let you know if you're new to the podcast that uh, I recorded a another conversation at the end of season two. So that was last year in 2022, the final episode of season two. So that makes it episode 32 in the podcast. I interviewed another crew who ejected from an F-111C, pilot David Rogers and navigator Peter Grouder who ejected off the coast of Auckland, New Zealand, and ended up in the open ocean in their F-111C ejection module. And goes, we go into a little more detail in that episode about the actual mechanics and the physics of the ejection process in the, in the F-111C, the design of it, and how it operated. So if you would like more detail about that, go back to that episode and have a listen uh, when I spoke to Mark, we didn't talk so much about all of the detail of that behind the scenes that was going on. We spoke about the incident itself, what happened and why, and what was the outcome. So just so you know, there is another episode that covers these two experiences of successful ejections from Australia's F-111s. So now here is my conversation with Mark Kelly. Captain Mark Kelly, Hello. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. You're joining me on the, the phone from your home. Now, why don't you first of all introduce us to uh, introduce yourself to us. Where are you from? Where were you born? And uh, what are you doing these days as a pilot? Um, thank you, Gary. Well, uh, I was born in Melbourne uh, and had a family of... Uh, a law background. They all became lawyers, but I wasn't going to be. I always uh, had looked to the sky and believed that uh, aviation uh, was in my uh, future. Uh, but I did uh, graduate from uh, high school in, in Melbourne uh, and was just to the post-Vietnam era. So uh, when I applied to the Air Force to, uh, to learn to fly, uh, 
it was still at that time where um, it was a very busy uh, uh, military and I was still taken by the uh, what the aviation side of things would offer. Mm. But just prior to uh, joining the uh, military in, uh, in the mid-70s, I had actually learned to fly. I went down to Moorabbin Airport, which is the uh, general aviation airport in Melbourne, and uh, did a couple of uh, trial lessons there. My dad thought that that would uh, convince me I didn't really want to fly aeroplanes, but it did exactly <laughs> the opposite. So I learned to fly at age 16, and back in those days in Melbourne, you couldn't drive a car until you were 18. That's right. So I used to hitchhike down to Moorabbin Airport at 16, uh, learned to fly, and on my 17th birthday, got my pilot's license. And then on my uh, 18th birthday, I joined the Air Force. Well, let's talk about your Air Force career in a moment. So you, you, what, what inspired you, Mark? What, what made you want to get up into the sky? Well, you might find this is a, a little bit uh, cliche, but when I was uh, my youth, uh, we read uh, books. It was well before the days of the, uh, the internet and the like. So uh, there was an author, W.E. Johns, who uh, wrote mm. about a fictional character, uh, Mr. Biggles, Captain Biggles. Exactly. Uh, who uh, <laughs> flew in the uh, First World War. And uh, his adventures seemed to be uh, romantic, amazing, and it just actually enthralled me and had me looking up to the skies. And as a side, as I've now turned a bit older, my, my grown-up daughters gave me the collection of uh, W.E. John Spiegel's books. But they, they look a bit older than they were in my day. You can't put a value on inspiration, can you? And, and here we are talking today, looking back on decades of a flying experience. I want to play you a, a little uh, recording that will get us started talking about your most one of your most recent experiences just a couple of years ago in uh, July 2020 and now the quality is not fantastic it's actually you speaking and I'd like you then to explain to us what it is that we were hearing so here we go Now, actually, dear listener, I won't play that whole clip for you because it's very difficult to understand. I played it all for Mark, um, but of course there's a lot of uh, ambient noise inside the cabin of a 747. It's actually a recording of Mark Kelly's cabin announcement on board the Qantas 747-400 VHOEJ, Oscar Echo Juliet, Wanala, on its final flight over Brisbane on the 15th of July 2020. Anyway, I played the clip for Mark and he picks up the story. What are we listening to there, Mark? Well, uh, it still brings uh, a tear to my eye if you can hear it through the uh, the noise of those wonderful uh, uh, 747 uh, General Electric uh, engines. Um, I was very fortunate uh, just uh, prior to the big COVID, uh, you know, major shutdown that uh, I was given the command of the the last uh, Boeing 747, uh, Oscar Echo Juliet, uh, for one of the three farewell flights. We had a farewell flight out of. So I flew the, the second last uh, flight, which was the Brisbane flight, and the final one was when it went out of Sydney off to the, the desert. And 
Uh, yeah, I was the I was the, the captain. Uh, it was my my final uh, flight uh, as a as a training captain, and get a lot of uh, press coverage at the time at the time because uh, the Queen of the Skies uh, does hold a lot uh, in people's hearts. Oh, indeed, and uh, that was a um, that was a week. Or so before the final flight across to where it ended up in the Mojave Boneyard, I believe. And as you say, it was quite emotional for you as well. I mean, you'd had twenty five thousand some hours at that point in seven four sevens. Is that right? Yes. Uh, when I joined uh, Qantas back in the uh, the mid eighties, Qantas was an all Boeing seven four seven fleet. It, that's all it had. And I started uh, in my late twenties on. Boeing 747s, the, the, the classic, the, the 200 series uh, Boeing 747. And I never went anywhere else. I just stayed on Boeings. Uh, I was fortunate. I just stayed on the 747 and uh, accumulated about 20,000 hours in command of Boeing 747s. Mm. That's kind of coming towards the end of your career. Let's go back to the start again. You mentioned Biggles. You mentioned getting your pilot's license as a teenager. And then the Air Force. So tell us about uh, entering the Air Force and what you did in those uh, those early years. Well, uh, if I said everything, I flew in the Air Force, and of course, and probably in commercial aviation now, is on a flagpole somewhere or in a museum. <laughs> um, I, uh, I learned to fly uh, in uh, a training aircraft uh, called a, a Windjill, uh, which is indigenous for Little Eagle, is uh, built in Australia. And it had a big radial engine, and so a young eighteen-year-old uh, was quite a quite a handful for a young pilot to to, uh, to fly compared to the little Cessna one hundred and fifties that I had touched beforehand. So I learned to fly uh, down at Point Cook, the, the first place of our air force uh, on Windjills, and then moved over to uh, Number Two Flight uh, Training School at Pierce, which is in Western Australia where I continued my uh, training on uh, a Mackie jet trainer. And, uh, and then following graduation, uh, went and flew uh, Caribou's. And as I touched on a little bit earlier, that was the Vietnam era or just post-Vietnam era. Uh, I spent my time doing flood relief, uh, army support. And of course, uh, we had overseas uh, detachments and I spent six months peacekeeping in, uh, in Kashmir and flying the, the caribou as a very young uh, um, captain there. I still remember when I had the, the head of the United Nations as a passenger on my uh, my military caribou, mm-hmm. and I must have been at about age 20. And uh, the Air Force was uh, not a large Air Force. They needed to couldn't just take Mirage pilots because they had not that many of them. So I had the amazing opportunity of being uh, posted to number six squadron to transition from flying a caribou to flying an F-111, where the uh, takeoff speed of a uh, F-111 was about the fastest that a uh, caribou could ever fly. Yes, so right. uh, You mentioned museums. Now, each of those four aircraft that you've you've described, we have uh, an example of at the Queensland Air Museum. We have a Windjill and a Mackie, and we have a caribou and uh, an F-111C, of course, the number 129. So, I mean, in terms of uh, museums, you're, we've got you covered, and our uh, caribou was... Um, in number thirty-five squadron, it's it's uh, number one seven three. I think you were in thirty-eight squadron. Is that right? That's right. I mean, uh, back in uh, the days, they had the, the more tactical uh, of the 
uh, squadrons, which was 35 squadron, and then 38 squadron was the training squadron, and uh, also uh, did uh, general uh, air force support. So uh, I was uh, with number 38 squadron, mm-hmm. but there was uh, there was an intermix between the two. Uh, two squadrons to to a, a degree. Yes, in fact, I think our caribou was in both squadrons at one time or another. Yeah, the caribou that I uh, now fly down at the Historical Aircraft Museum, which is mm. uh, down Del Harbour, uh, again was one that I was flying back in the uh, in the mid seventies. So, what goes around comes around. I. Uh, you know, yeah, now that's that's the that vintage of aeroplanes. I, I think that's what there's. A, there are only two caribous flying. Is that correct? Only only uh, two caribous flying in the world, to yes. my knowledge, and both of them are based down at uh, Albion Park at, at the Haas, yeah. uh, Aircraft uh, Museum down there. Amazing. Okay, well, so you began to talk about the F one eleven, and we'll go there now. Um, you're twenty two, I think, when you take your first flight. Uh, in uh, was one three four, I think, wasn't it? Uh, that's it. And um, I uh, was very fortunate because A eight one three four was my first flight, but it is now on display down at the uh, Australian War Memorial in their aircraft collection. Yes. Uh, the reason being is that uh, it was involved in the uh, Timor uh, interdiction, but it happened to be the one that I had my very first flight in. and Indeed. In fact, I, you sent me a photograph of you standing next to 134, and the the, uh, the hair seems to be a slightly different colour um, from what I've seen <laughs> when you were young. In fact, let's go back to when you were 22. I, I'm sorry this is going to embarrass you, but this is from a documentary about that first flight, and this is you at the age of 22 describing to some interviewer what it was like. The first flight in an F-111 is one that few of the students forget. That flight was pretty exciting, as you imagine, the takeoff in my heart and my lungs and then my throat and uh, big quip out my spine, but it was really exciting, you know. Can't compare it to anything else. We lit the afterburners and away it went. It just took off and uh, it was a fantastic feeling. You know, I can liken it to my, my first solo. It's very exciting, but uh, the first solo aeroplanes are nothing like this and I'm... I'm really enjoying myself, and this is fantastic. Now, that may embarrass you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, no, does. not embarrassing, but just uh, cringeworthy. Cringeworthy. But, uh, <laughs> but it's great but, to but hear, like, you're 22 years old, and, you know, you're, you're, you're in command of this aircraft. I, I think it's a great little snapshot into the human side of this, you know. Well, to be honest, there was another pilot. Uh, we both came from the Caribou Squadron, uh, and they sent two of us across to F-111s. And we were, at the time, to our knowledge, the youngest pilots ever to fly an F-111. So it was a pretty big, big hurdle. And there were some in the uh, F-111 and fighter squadrons who thought, no, you needed to be ex-Mirage or Sabre to be able to fly an F-111. But caribou pilot, a transport pilot, but uh, the Air Force trained pilots to fly anything. Uh, and if you've got the skills uh, and ability, well, you can fly everything, anything. And I was very fortunate to to have that amazing uh, experience. Amazing, yeah. Well, uh, of course, that brings us inevitably to the twenty fourth of August, nineteen seventy nine. Just a few months after you had taken that first flight, uh, what happened that day, Mark? Yes, 
I was part of a four-ship, uh, four-aircraft takeoff. We're over on uh, exercise in New Zealand, uh, taking off from an Air Force base uh, called Ohakia. Uh, we were part of a uh, maritime exercise out trying to uh, uh, pretend to scuttle some American carriers. And we were taking off uh, that day uh, in heavy rain. And as part of the four-ship formation, I was number three to take off. The other two uh, aircraft uh, went, and there was a lot of water pulling on the runway due to the rain. For whatever reason, the Kiwis had designed the runway to have the drain not on the side but down the runway, and the nose wheel of my aircraft uh, managed to uh, push all the water rearwards down the intake of the two F-111 engines. It suffered uh, what's called a compressed stall, loss of thrust, basically a double engine failure. And as we went over uh, the cliff at the end of the runway, we ejected. And so uh, this was the uh, first known uh, Air Force uh, ejection from the ground. And because I'm talking to you, safely ejected. Yeah. And the 55th ejection in the RAAF's history. Um, and it was you and uh, your navigator, Al Kerr, am I right? That's, uh, that's right. So what happened going back to the actual takeoff, so we're number three in a formation, the F-111 needs its afterburners to uh, get to take off, and it's quite a short runway there, so we needed all the thrust we could get. And we were... Uh, just about 90 knots or so on, on takeoff. And uh, then it's just like we hit a brick wall. The uh, the, the aircraft has stopped uh, accelerating. With a compressor stall, the only way you can clear the uh, this failure is to close the thrust levers and then re-push to get the engines going again. But with the end of the runway just there, there was no opportunity to do anything other than give the command eject as we went over the uh, cliff at the end of the runway. Uh, a lot of airfields around the world have arresting uh, equipment, uh, be it cables or barriers. Uh, unfortunately, the cable for this runway was um, designed for the uh, Kiwi Skyhawks and so wasn't certified to be able to stop an F-111. And although I did deploy the hook in the hope that uh, we would be able to take it, uh, the Kiwis had removed the uh, cable that day just because they didn't want us to be able to use it and possibly break it or it wouldn't stop us. So, again, we went over uh, the end of the runway because we just aquaplaned as we had attempted to stop because we couldn't go, mm. couldn't stop. So you're, you're uh, doing about 90 knots, I think, just as you leave the, yeah. the end of the runway. And so you call eject and just ex- explain to those who may not know what happens in an F-111 when you eject. What's what's the, the actual mechanics of that? The F-111 uh, was designed so that the whole capsule separates and the pilot and navigator stay in the capsule. This is a design to allow you to be able to eject at high speed because the F-111 capable of flying two and a half times the speed of sound. If you were uh, ejecting at high speed and just using a normal ejection seat, uh, you probably will be killed. So, uh, so going back, so the whole capsule actually separates. When you pull the uh, the handle, there's two, one for the pilot, one for the navigator joined, uh, there's a, a momentary a delay while charges 
separate the whole capsule about the size of a car and cuts um, through the fuselage, separates the cables and initiates the firing mechanism for the for the rockets that part that um, propel the uh, the capsule. So as we went over, there's you know pull the handle, there's a momentary pause, then the whole thing separates and you get a fifteen to twenty G kick in your backside as this thing just hurdles vertically upwards. And that take, uh, punches you up it, four it, or five hundred feet, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we remember we're on the ground. We've just gone over a cliff at the end of the runway here. And so uh, at 89 knots, to be exact, yeah, because that's where the instruments all cut out and, and show that the speed mm. we were doing. So we went up four to 500 feet, and then it's all the su- silent for a moment, and you're wondering what's going to happen there here. And then the cables deploy, uh, the varying parachutes come out of the, the module, uh, the nose drops down initially, and I could recall looking straight down at the fireball that was immediately underneath me because the aeroplane had gone over the cliff into a little hollow uh, past the end of the runway and burst into flames. It was full of fuel. And uh, then we were now pointing straight at it because we'd just gone straight up above it. And uh, thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Uh, and then the uh, rest of the parachute deployed, and it the module then um, settles itself down for the landing. Uh, airbags deploy underneath it because you can't control yourself like you are just as an individual in the parachute. You've come along for the ride here and you've got a cushioning bag that cushions the impact to a degree. But as you do hit the ground, if I can liken it to being on the roof of a three-story building, or sorry, of your two-story building on a wooden deck chair, going across and then just jumping off and hitting the ground. That's what it felt Goodness. like. It, so you, but, must, uh, it, you must have sustained some injuries. Uh, yes, I have compressions fractures throughout my back. Uh, they have you know, luckily healed, but, uh, yeah, I did get compression fractures. And it's not fair in life because I'm not very tall. But So people who aren't tall lose height, and I lost actually about an inch, about two centimetres in height mm. by the compression fractures Um uh, that incurred both during the ejection and on the landing. Well, it goes without saying that we're delighted that you were able to survive that, you know, that experience, it, despite there were injuries. Um, Al and you both went on to continue flying F-111s, I believe, didn't you, afterwards? Uh, that's, that's correct, as I say, um, if I just touch on it. So uh, my injuries were predominantly because we had... Uh, been attempting to uh, to stop the aeroplane because we couldn't go, so my backside was just fractionally off the seat, and therefore, when you uh, have a rocket with a uh, fifteen to twenty g push, uh, you don't need much of a little air gap there uh, mm-hmm. for for the compressions to you know to take effect, and so uh, that meant that I was into a longer recovery period than the navigator who was sitting there and was in a, a better position to be able to uh, manage the uh, the ejection forces. But we both uh, recovered, Al, without particularly injury, me with my compression fractures, and returned to flying the uh, the F-111. I was, was uh, lucky enough to, to spend another tour there, and if I can uh, give a little anecdotal story, the first flight that I came back flying the F-111 it has what's called a terrain-following radar. Yes. Uh, 
the beauty of the F-111. Uh, it was able to fly you know, at around uh, 600 knots, just subsonic, a couple hundred feet above the ground in mountainous terrain to uh, deliver a payload to um, a target. I think we were going to the Liddell Power Stations, which happens to have just closed without having been bombed by me, but I did try to bomb it enough times. And <laughs> the uh, terrain following radar takes you between valleys and uh, missing hills. But it doesn't really care that if you're going to miss these hills by just a matter of uh, metres because it just wants you to be as close to the terrain as possible because if you are above the terrain, you're then a target for any uh, anti-craft missiles or, or fire. So on this day, my first flight back, we're doing this in cloud uh, about I think we were about 480 knots uh, going around, and uh, the navigator, who was the instructor at that time, was looking at our uh, train scope to say, yes, the terrain ahead is clear. And as I popped out of a bit of cloud, there was a hill right in front of me that we were about to impact. So disconnected the train following radar, pulled back, overstressed me, probably the aeroplane a bit, just missed the hill, and uh, we went back to base and what had happened is the terrain following radar itself had been tilted off a few degrees so it was looking not in the line of where we were going but just a few degrees off to the side so it was thinking this hill you know we were going to pass but we weren't so so my first flight back from the um the f-111 ejection was this one and i thought is it trying to tell me <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I then went on to a, uh, you know, a, a career flying the F-111 before I got posted to become a flying instructor uh, over at one of our flying schools. I mean, as a complete civilian and a non-pilot, you know, it, it horrifies me to think that you have to surrender control of your aircraft to the computer and fly at such <laughs> terrifying altitude and in conditions. It was nighttime. It, if it was raining, it wouldn't make any difference. In fact, I think most of uh, the F-111Cs were engaged in night strikes. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, if you do have any ex-Mirage listeners, I will uh, basically uh, have a little smile because uh, back in those days, remember, we're talking about the uh, early 70s before uh, weapons got far more sophisticated. Uh, aircraft like the Mirage didn't have a look-down, shoot-down capability. So the reason we were down there is because we couldn't get shot down by other aircraft because they couldn't differentiate easily between us and the uh, terrain. So we were safer down there. Once we went up to any altitude, we were a bit of a sitting duck. Uh, so we were doing it at night, in cloud, hopefully, uh, and at, at very high speed. And the computers that we were using, our inertial navigation system, again, before the GPS days, uh, was the same as what had been used for the lunar landing module. Uh, oh, yeah. So it was, it was early technology, but still pretty amazing technology for the day. And it worked, yeah. It worked. Uh, after the uh, Board of Inquiry, after the investigation into the ejection uh, incident, w were there any changes made uh, to prevent that from happening again with the water coming into the, the engines? Uh, yes. The Americans, had, who were the only other operator of the F-111, had had the similar issue, but because they have very long runways and arresting gear at the end of those runways, it never caused any issue. I mean, if the aeroplane uh, had a, a problem like that, it would just stop, take the arresting gear, and go back to the other end of the runway, probably go again. 
but uh, in Ohakia, that wasn't a, a, a case for us. Or, so the tyres themselves didn't have went chine, so the water just went straight rearwards. So the change was put in chine nose wheel tyres, which would push the water to the side, not down the engine, so that, heaven forbid, if you ended up with a similar situation, uh, that you wouldn't have water go, being directed straight down the intakes of the two engines. And, of course, there were lots of warnings put in the manuals about be very cautious taking off on pooling runway conditions. You uh, then went on to, as you say, to be a training captain uh, or a training pilot with the F-111Cs. When did you make the move into commercial aviation? So I uh, spent my time uh, as a uh, last last sort of three or so years in the Air Force was as a uh, a senior flying instructor over at uh, Number Two Flying Training School at uh, at Pierce on Mackey's. Then I went back over to F One Eleven to uh, to uh, train to become an instructor there, but. Biggles came back to me again, and uh, Qantas, who hadn't uh, recruited for a decade or so, said, no, we now are going to expand our airline, and it was either uh, take it or leave it. And so I I took the opportunity to leave the F-111 squadron, which was a very, very difficult decision to make, but uh, it's one I did make, and uh, I then went over to Qantas back in... Uh, late 83, early 84, uh, to train as a junior pilot on 747s. You also had a seniority system. So it took a long, long time to be able to get your promotion. But given the fact that Qantas was now just recruiting again, uh, I was very fortunate coming in at the start of that, that I spent just about a year and a bit as as a second officer, which was carrying the captain's bags and getting the, the charts out and, and being an assistant uh, to then becoming a, a first officer for a few years, which is, you know, the, the co-pilot to the, to the captain. And I had a command on Boeing 747 Classics about five years after joining Qantas. So where I'd been one of the youngest F-111 pilots in the world, again, I then became one of the youngest ever 747 captains in the world. And you went on to a 35-year career with Qantas. Um, uh, yes, my, my grey hair is not because of that particularly, but um, <laughs> I, I flew uh, pretty well every variant of the 747 from the 100 series, 200, 300, combi, SP. Uh, and I was lucky I spent some time over at Boeing and I got to fly the Boeing 747-800 simulator before uh, covid beat me and I was given uh, an early retirement. Well, we're very glad you got the opportunity to get grey hair. You know, you've had uh, a long and and very interesting career as a pilot. Are you still flying? Uh, Yes, uh, very much on a a casual uh, basis. I love aviation, I have from the start, and I love mentoring uh, pilots, and I've been fortunate to be able to do that at flying schools at Bankstown, Camden, and Shell Harbour in New South Wales here, but also to be a, a trainer on the Caribou, which again, where I started my military mm. uh, squadron career. So I'm now down there uh, flying the um, 
the Caribou, the, the aircraft number 210 and 234 are flying. Uh, just through the Anzac Day fly past them. So those who saw it come over uh, Sydney. Uh, so I was able to do that and still involved now training the next generation of pilots who can keep our heritage flying. And I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to do that and, and mentor our pilots along the way. Well, dare I say, Mark, if you get the chance to come up to Caloundra, we would love to uh, welcome you as our guest at the Queensland Air Museum and we can kick some tyres from the very aircraft that you've been talking about and uh, you could uh, perhaps regale us with some more stories. I, I, It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and I hope that we can see you someday at the Queensland Air Museum. Captain Mark Kelly, thank you very much. It's been my absolute pleasure to talk to you. So that's our episode. Thank you to those of you who have listened all the way through these three seasons and for those of you who've dipped in and out of them. It's so good to know that there are people out there listening. Thank you for the feedback. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the suggestions about topics and the connections that you've provided for me with very interesting people to speak with. We look forward to season four coming up later in 2023. For now, though, that's it for our weekly podcasts for this season don't forget at the queensland air museum in caloundra in pathfinder drive just across the road from the caloundra aerodrome we are open every day except christmas day and easter friday from 10 a.m to 4 p.m and we would love to meet you so come on in and see us soon bye for now